0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 249, Ultrasounds Anywhere. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. If you live in a bigger city, chances are you live close to a hospital that is at least a drivable distance. It's not always the case, though, particularly in more remote areas, and it's definitely not the case for astronauts living in space. With long-duration missions, having remote access to medical professionals is a must. A project on the space station called Advanced Diagnostic Ultrasound in Microgravity, or ADAM, was created to see how to potentially diagnose medical conditions and injuries in space through ultrasounds. On the way to Mars, there's really no turning around to find a convenient hospital for medical examinations, so astronauts will need to be able to help their fellow crewmates on the go from millions of miles away. Adams successfully demonstrated this capability of remote ultrasound on the space station. But what if we could broaden the scope and use the same capability to conduct remote ultrasounds here on Earth? This eventually created a foundation for WinFocus, the world interactive network focused on critical ultrasound and the world leading scientific network for ultrasounds. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Scott Dolchovsky, principal investigator for ADAM and surgeon in chief and chairman at Henry Ford Health in Detroit, Michigan and Dr. Daniel Siegel, musculoskeletal radiologist, also at Henry Ford Health. Both doctors will be discussing how these projects not only impact long-term spaceflight on the International Space Station, the Moon, and eventually Mars, but how it can and has impacted the people here on Earth. With that, let's get right into it. Enjoy. Minus five
1: seconds county. Mark. she goes. we have a podcast?
0: Scott and Dan, thanks so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today.
2: Great. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Wonderful to be here.
0: Very good. Uh, we're going to get into ultrasounds and how we uh, and how we took that into space and then around the world. But uh, to, to get a sense of who we're talking to uh, when it comes to um, you know this this atom uh, investigation and then and then what's grown from it, uh, let's first understand sort of uh, who you guys are, Scott. If you'll if you'll start uh, with um, some of the things you're working on and what led you to. Um, uh, to where you are today, and your involvement with um, with Adam and uh, and with NASA.
1: Sure, I'm a surgeon uh, at heart, and uh, I'm up here at Henry Ford in uh, Detroit, where I'm the surgeon in chief. But if you go back 30 years, uh, a medical school classmate of mine wanted to and became an astronaut, and he <laughs> introduced me to all of the unique challenges in the pre-international space station era there were on diagnosing uh, problems that might occur in our astronauts when they exit the planet for a number of years ultrasound at that time was uh, a novel technique outside of radiology and we were only beginning to use it in very limited scenarios for the diagnosis of patients after trauma so we were just getting these new machines in our hands and trying to figure out what to do with them. And I thought there might be some applicability uh, in the shuttle and then space station because these machines are getting smaller, more portable, more easy to use, and more powerful.
0: Excellent, excellent. Now, what what is what is it about, uh, you know, at the time, what was a, a newer technology? What was so fascinating about uh ultrasounds that could reveal something medically to you, give you information that you needed? Uh, what what was great about ultrasounds?
1: You know, my partner on the call is a, is a radiologist, and he's been extensively trained in, in ultrasound. In fact, it's Dan's specialty, and he can talk about that in a minute. And they have always used it for classic indications. Probably many of the people listening today have had an ultrasound. Uh, congratulations, your child will be a boy. Or my gosh, you've got ultra, you've got uh, gallstones, or perhaps uh, you have uh, an abdominal aneurysm in that. But we had such unique things uh, that were occurring on the shuttle and space station when we we're trying to develop additional diagnostic capabilities, and then you had all these challenges. We were not planning an X-ray machine, or a CAT scan, or an MRI. So how would you diagnose things like? a collapsed lung or a broken bone or things like that absent uh, these capabilities. So we started to think about, okay, how do you train somebody really quickly, uh, a non-doctor generally, to use a pretty advanced technology, Dan has spent years uh, getting the skills together to get images, and then can you use them in novel locations in that, such as diagnosing lung problems, never been done before so we proposed this to nasa and they thought it would was quite interesting Uh, hence this uh, Adam advanced diagnostic ultrasound in microgravity uh, initial experiments that we started almost two decades ago and have continued now for all of that time in, in a broad expansion one of the things i'm really proud of is we showed not just that these very talented astronauts and cosmonauts can actually do these uh, exams, but that they work. And when we started looking at could you diagnose a lung problem with this, yes. In fact, so well that now that's come back to the planet and it's a standard done every day. So if we are worried about a collapsed lung in my emergency room, more likely than not you are going to get an ultrasound examination very quickly done, cheap, it can be nearly free, no radiation, and provide you uh, immediate results that we'd have to wait for a chest X-ray before. Now that's a standard everywhere. And that, that initially started from these very small investigations off of our planet, on NASA facilities funded by NASA, and that, that's impacted terrestrial medicine. And that can be done on a mountaintop. We've done it on Mount Everest. Been done in sub-Saharan Africa, military conflicts, and all that. It's just a wonderful story,
0: and that's the story we're really going to get into. But 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 first, let's uh, let's take a pit stop to Dan. Dan, you mentioned Dan. Your specialty is radiology. Uh, this is this is your focus, and of course, you saw the some of the potential that Scott was alluding to. Can you tell me how you got into your field and how you got looped into uh, into the world with NASA to to really kick off some of the things that Scott was talking about.
2: Sure thing. Um, I guess the the easiest way to start is to say that uh, at my heart, I am a technologist. Mm. Uh, When I was an undergraduate, uh, I studied computer science and thought that I was going to go off and uh, become a a software designer, software developer, before I was inspired by a mentor who happened to be a surgeon, uh, just like Scott, uh, and inspired me to uh, take my passion for technology and apply it uh, as a clinician uh the uh the, the the way he really inspired me was to show that uh the easiest path to uh integrate the technology and the clinical side of things was to do it from a clinical perspective uh and uh i loved imaging at the time um i loved the idea that you can look at a picture of a, of a of a human being and be able to understand uh, what's going on inside the body from a physiological or pathological sense and use that information uh, to make a decision about a treatment uh, or an intervention uh, that can really help them in a very immediate way. Uh, there's uh, just such an, uh, uh, an an evolution that has happened with imaging, even since I went into the field about 20 years ago, where uh, the image quality has improved, the technology has advanced, uh, and we're now able to do things uh, with handheld devices uh, that was just not even imaginable um, uh, before this uh, this miniaturization of technology has uh, advanced. And uh, I'm particularly excited about ultrasound because it does a couple things that other imaging technologies don't do. If you think about a CAT scan or an MRI, they're really taking a snapshot in time. Uh, but what ultrasound can do is get a real-time view of things that move inside the body. You can actually see the beating heart. You can actually see a baby move. Uh, and, uh, when you look at my specialty, which is actually the musculoskeletal system, bones, joints, tendons, and the like, uh, it's an incredibly, uh, valuable tool for looking at injuries because you can see when things move correctly. And you can also see things that don't move correctly. So when you're looking for broken bone, torn muscle, torn tendon, those kinds of things, you can see that almost immediately. Um, and one of the other great things about ultrasound is there's really no contraindication. Unlike a CAT scan, which uh, gives off radiation or an MRI, which has a very strong magnetic field and then can have all kinds of problems with that, Anyone can get an ultrasound at any time. Uh, so it's, uh, it's really a, a great tool to have in the hands of any clinician. Uh, and, and one of the great things that I've seen evolve over the last 20 years is that we've, uh, as a um, medicine in general, has adopted that. And we're starting to see ultrasound used by more and more clinicians in more and more different areas. And it really, truly is portable. It translates up into space. It translates out into remote and rural parts of Earth, Um, and it's a tool that, with the right kind of guidance and the right kind of training, can really be effective in the hands of almost anybody. So really, really love ultrasound and love to see how it's being used in new and interesting ways all the time.
0: Excellent. You're both alluding to this this fantastic growth in the technology and the applications of ultrasound, and both of you have been in this field for for a very long time. Let's let's take it back towards the beginning. Dan, we'll stick with you for just a second. Um, it, it seems like earlier earlier in your career, you you there was this this technology, this ultrasound technology, and I'm sure that you you guys were both um, uh, thinking about. What are the potential applications here? This this technology is, is incredible. And I wanted to kind of pick your brain on earlier in your career when you were thinking about ultrasound as a technology to how that led to let's try to do something in space.
2: Well, the first thing that I would point to there is that these machines used to be the size of refrigerators. Hmm. Um, they were very big, very expensive, and the screens on them were were microscopic. Uh, it's amazing we were able to make the diagnosis that we could, but what I think it showed is the potential for, as we've seen with most things uh, in, in computerization and and, uh, and technology like this, we knew it would get smaller. We knew it would get better. We knew that eventually it would grow to the form factor that it is right now, where it's almost the size where it can fit into your pocket plug into a handheld screen and give you the ability to, you know, with a little bit of a battery power, take it anywhere, including up into space. Um, and the, the, the second thing I would point to is ultrasound has a reputation for being somewhat difficult. Um, it's easy for anybody to pick up a probe, but sometimes it can be a little bit challenging to train them to put it down on the body in the right place get the right picture of the organ or structure that they're looking at and know that what they're looking at is normal or abnormal and very fine movements of your hand on the probe can have a pretty dramatic uh, change in what the image looked like. So one of the things that I've really been focused on, if I would go back a while back uh, to sort of think about how I thought that this should evolve is a lot needs to be uh built into training people to use ultrasound effectively. You don't need to be an expert in order to get perfect images, but you do need a basic level of understanding in order to get good enough images. And so we've put a ton of work into, um, into the education and training programs that teach not just clinicians, but also um, novice users, uh, students, astronauts, others that may not have ever held an ultrasound before, how to guide themselves to get really uh, good quality images. And one of the things we're starting to even see now is software that can run on the ultrasound machine itself that can provide automated guidance. Uh, Really, really exciting technology, potentially gives anyone, uh, even an untrained user, the capability to use a probe anywhere in the world or anywhere in the, uh, in, in, even up in space, to get these images and make a diagnosis from them.
0: Oh, excellent. Now, um, uh, Scott, when you when we first came to you, you talked about the applications on the shuttle and on the space station with some of the um, when when Dan is going over the progression of the t- technology and how portable it became. I wonder how um, how you guys ended up working together on this investigation called Adam and maybe even before and, and after Adam as well. But it sounds like, you know, you, you've spent a lot of time working on this technology and then and then these these capabilities of training non-medical doctors so so in many cases astronauts how to use the device so so can you talk about the genesis of the of the some of your efforts to to um uh to start ap- applying this technology in space
1: yeah as Dan suggested, it's been a, an iterative process. Part of it was involved with the technology advances. So it's quite difficult to fly something the size of a refrigerator. It's impossible to make that portable to take out into a sub-Saharan Africa or India or something like that. There's a cost prohibitions that are, you know, less relevant for a Space program, but completely relevant when you're trying to democratize this in a in an underserved region. So we first had to slowly modify and wait for the technology to catch up. And as Dan suggested, that has been explosive, in that there are, there are hundreds of companies that are continually uh, making this technology uh, more user friendly, more powerful, uh, better uh, better image quality, and things uh, things like that. I think the the partnership and, you know, you're missing a really important component in this. So I'm a sort of surgeon that understands some of the unique challenges within space. Dan is a radiologist who is an expert in ultrasound that dwarfs my capabilities in that. But the third is the user and getting that user interface. It is not going to be Dan, who's got hundreds of thousands of hours on probe, me who has tens of thousands of hours, I might have somebody that's got tens of minutes, and that's so that user is critically important. So I think what we did really well uh, was talk to the crew uh, who were going to be, uh, okay, what is the best way you learn things? And that's what Adam was all about, is to get those just-in-time training programs in place that made sense for an astronaut crew but interestingly makes sense for a medical student or for a nurse midwife or for a policeman or for an army corpsman and that to be able to quickly get these skills so that w- that's what Adam was all about it's this sort of this tripartite uh, partnership that would allow us to go oh okay this is how you might train somebody and that's what's been durable for the 20-some years with some improvements in animation and things like that. The second part of this was, okay, great, we can get a picture. Would that picture be appropriate for use in the various uh, scenarios that might occur in space, such as the lung uh, condition that I mentioned earlier or problems with the bones if you, you hit something up there? Problems with spine. We did months of work with the astronauts in orbit on some of the spinal challenges that they're having. That again happened back here on the Earth that would mandate a multi thousand dollar um, MRI uh, evaluation. Most recently, working on some of the ocular problems that we see in our uh, long duration cruise, in that, and then looking even more forward to exploration class spaceflight and the air, changes. In the fluids that are appropriate, fluid balance in astronauts a long time off the planet, which are also appropriate for heart failure patients here uh, back on Earth. Looking at changes with lunar dust that might be di- detectable with uh, uh, ultrasound. That would, again, coming back here to look at uh, people that are exposed industrially to uh, small particles here in that and then finally, and maybe even the most exciting that we might talk about later, is looking way future-wise about how can we non-invasively, as Dan suggested, this is a little goo on a probe on your skin, and that doesn't hurt. It doesn't really cost much. Could we use that to monitor things more longer term, like diabetes, whether you have diabetes, how well you're doing, whether you will get diabetes, and that it's a really... A novel uh, technology that uh, its powers are almost uh, almost limitless. I hate to say it's like a Star Trek tricorder, but it, it's sort of the closest thing we have right now.
0: Hmm. So, if I were to s- sort of summarize, and, and maybe Dan, I'll I'll toss this to you. Sort of summarize uh, uh, Scott's some of his thoughts here when it comes to. Uh, working in space it sounds like sounds like there's a there's a component here of evolution and maybe maybe um, talking about atom is really just more of a snapshot where the technology improves and they become more user friendly and you want to continue to use the latest and greatest technologies uh, so so you can keep exploring new ways to to refine the training program and and use the technologies in space for monitoring in space but then it sounds like it's it's translated to a lot of things on on the ground as well is that is that a fair uh summarization that there's this there's this evolution uh with the with the training and with your efforts when it comes to ultrasounds that maybe follows the the technology progression
2: Yeah no that's um that's certainly accurate Uh, You know, one of the things I would say about ultrasound, and Scott was starting to allude to this, is one of its greatest strengths is its versatility. Um, You can use ultrasound to diagnose an almost unlimited number of conditions in the body with very little restriction and very little limitation. And you can do so in real time, like we were mentioning before. And that's just a capability that you don't have with pretty much any other imaging technique that we see, certainly not uh, anything else but the portability um, and low cost and availability that ultrasound has now become. And that has been a evolution over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that becomes really important because one of the things Scott was just saying is that, you know, we can anticipate some of the common issues that are going to come up in space, whether it's fluid shift. Changes in the bone, that sort of thing. Um, but there's a lot of unanticipated things that come that come up, uh, and particularly when we think, you know, even uh, more exploration or next generation type stuff, whether it's to the moon or Mars or beyond, there needs to be a very versatile diagnostic tool, uh, kind of like a tricorder. Um, We're not quite that far along yet, but uh, it certainly gives us the capabilities to put a diagnostic tool in the hand of someone that can deal with unexpected issues, whether that's appendicitis, gallstones, uh, trauma, injuries. uh, Those can all be really well evaluated with ultrasound. Uh, And so that ability to deal with unexpected uh, issues is something that there's Really, nothing else that we have right now uh, uh, that uh, you know, ultrasound is uh, really the best suited for.
0: Interesting. I wanna wanna to stick to space for just for just a moment and, and Scott go back to you for a second because um you know, one of the things you mentioned is is that through this capability and uh making making the ultrasounds user friendly, I'm sure, you know, they may they may or may not have been operating on the on them, you know, uh, kind of on their own or maybe maybe with you guys. But if you can talk about when it comes to actually working with the astronauts to refine some of these techniques, can you talk about some of the things that you did, and then some of the things that you learned uh, through this demonstration of working with astronauts in orbit?
1: That's a wonderful uh, question because it's uh, everybody's experience in space is so limited, right? We it's it's mere hundreds of people that have spent any time off our off our planet. And so we had some initial assumptions, some of which were uh, blown out of the water, others which were realized in in spades in that. And I think that we trialed so many of these technologies, uh, first on the ground, then we modified them and used them in the NASA microgravity research facilities, uh, the parabolic flight uh, program, and that sort of look at the usability of the ultrasound in zero gravity, some of the how do you hold ultrasound requires you to take the probe and push it on something, and anybody who's spent any time in lower gravity knows when you push on something you get pushed away from something, so how you restrain yourself is critically important. The astronauts got really clever really quick on how to do that without fatiguing themselves without moving the machine or the patient or themselves away from things so that was Really, kind of fun, and I think one of the things that they uh, continually tell us about is uh, things that were highly value added their time is very critical, in that can we cut down on some of the training uh, in certain areas that they saw it was redundant or not uh, not necessary alternatively how, the areas that they thought they needed uh, additional uh, uh, expertise in either with, through uh, training? Uh, or Or through uh, hands on experiences in that some technology upgrades that they that they suggested to us, some educational upgrades that they suggested to us, but i tell you the real eye opening thing uh, uh to me was, and this is almost to a man and woman of the individuals who were as Dan suggested, they were a little frightened about ultrasound early on because it mm. the, the 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 images on the screen do not look like a heart. They look like a bunch of gray lines that are moving oddly in that. So, But most of them having either a military or a, a piloting background are really good with hand-eye coordination with, and with spatial recognition in that they really quickly figured out pattern recognition. So we would say, don't worry about all this other stuff. This, one, this is little area that will really make that area really sharp by moving the probe around. Ah, got it. And so we developed a nomenclature of how we could talk together, communicate really effectively. So that communication, uh, we call it remote expert guidance. Basically, the astronauts are being our robots when we're in real time. That will not occur on Mars with a 15-minute delay, mm-hmm. but how we could really effectively communicate. And that is now durable. That's how we do it across the planet when we do remote guidance uh, on this. And the second one is... I uh, under-anticipated uh, how well that they could do that, uh, absent us in that. So we we would have real-time sessions where there was some fair amount of hand-holding required. And towards the end of their uh, expeditions, boy, I was superfluous in, in that. And so much so that not only would they get the image, but they would start to make diagnostic impressions on that image. Hence our next grant, which was the catalog grant that just went, it was Adam on steroids. So it was a head-to-toe assessment in that, and not only was it that you could get an image in that, but then you could compare the image you got to a catalog of either normal or disease images. So if you are on Mars and you are a minimum of a 15-minute time delay phone call away from somebody, probably longer, that you could at least go, huh, this looks like that. And they could start to make plans for that. They'd obviously have expert oversight at some point in that. But it was quite remarkable to me that they were able to acquire this when I was sort of uh, haughtily as a doctor who spent so many hours doing this going, man, you picked that up pretty quick. And that sort of empowers me and I hope our teams to go, You know, this has been in the realm of very experienced doctors in the past, and probably people with a lot less training and skill in this can be pretty darn good in this technique.
0: And that, I think, leads perfectly. Dan, I'm going to toss to you because I'd like to switch gears here for a little bit. Um, having having this capability done in space, um, what I'd like to do is build from there and sort of take those lessons and, and and Scott's listing some wonderful ones, right, about some of the things that we learned and how um, this, this experiment has translated, I think, into one of the more recognizable, uh, in our terms, benefits for humanity. Um, in the way that we uh, we tried to solve a problem in space, and and it became something that um, can be approached in sort of our everyday lives and reaching f- folks around the world. Can you talk about that progression from um, from space to to the applications worldwide?
2: Absolutely, uh, and, and I think the perfect example of that is remote guidance. Uh, it's this idea that uh, whether you're you're ten miles away or thousands of miles away. Uh, To be able to see on a screen what a user uh, remotely is imaging and provide them feedback in real time has been an incredibly powerful tool uh, to enable us to um, essentially reach more people. Um, You can have an expert available to provide guidance, to provide feedback, to perhaps even help make a diagnosis if it's something new or an unusual condition. Um, and you don't need to have uh, the level of expertise that Scott was saying maybe we thought that we needed to have out in rural areas, in underserved areas, in areas with difficult terrain or otherwise hard to get to. Uh, We can now acquire those images. Don't need to necessarily send the absolute expert out there, but have the capability when needed on demand to get online and provide that teleguidance that's been incredibly powerful, and, and that's something we're actually using here in Detroit uh, to do something as simple as go out to patients' homes uh, and uh, check in on them, uh, provide imaging when needed of things like their lungs and heart, and um, have now real uh, quantitative and qualitative information about how they're doing, and be able to better make decisions about can they still recover at home, or do they need to come back to the hospital? Uh, and that's enabling us to really put the technology to use in a way that is impactful for people. Because we want to keep people healthy, we want to keep them out of the hospital. And having the ability to see this even remotely um, and, and provide that feedback when appropriate has been uh, has been really beneficial.
0: I think what's was was particularly special is just how expansive this is. What you're talking about, it's, it's certainly being applied in in Detroit, but. I understand there's been this effort to to create almost a network of folks using ultrasounds. I believe it's called WinFocus, and, and I, I, this is and I think there's been some evolution even from WinFocus. But can you can you tell us a little bit about that and how that this idea that that you guys have been working on and of course are practicing now in Detroit, going in you know having this incredible access where folks at home can um, you know can be receiving treatment and, and insight, but. How how it truly has expanded and how truly uh, uh, grand it is now.
2: Sure, I mean I can give you the um, the beginnings of that, but uh, Scott is really the uh, uh, knows a whole lot more about how this got started. Oh, uh, I'm really the recipient of the, uh, uh, the the energy and expertise that has been poured into this to create this group. But uh, what it does is it really recognizes that ultrasound is a very diverse. Uh, and and very democratic technology because it can be used by so many different experts for so many different reasons. Me as a radiologist uh, and a musculoskeletal radiologist, I'm using it day in, day out to diagnose uh, tears in muscles, ligaments, tendons, other injuries, that sort of thing. So that's a very different application than, say, an OBGYN or a surgeon or an internal medicine doctor who is mm. seeing someone in their clinic or out in their home or out in some remote area. Uh, so the idea that you can bring together a network of experts uh, to talk about, to research, and better understand how to standardize uh, the use and applicability of a technology like this is really important because otherwise you could see how it would go off in a hundred different directions Um, and potentially uh, disrupt or inhibit the ability of it to be used uh, in in positive ways. Um, Bringing together all that expertise collectively and having a continuous discussion uh, really seems to be the right way to understand uh, the value of it, not just uh, for one individual specialty, but as
0: a whole. Excellent, and 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 uh, Scott Dan mentioned that you can certainly ex- expand upon that being much closer to this to this wind focus, and then of course I, uh, the evolution of that.
1: Yeah, so we we developed this wonderful tool uh, for use on uh, in space, and the tool that we got we we did not develop an ultrasound machine; those are externally uh, developed. What we did was take how to make a very complicated and lengthy training program a lot more efficient and so we had this it worked great at nasa they continue to use the large components of this today at nasa how do you get the word out Uh, and so we started to look at partner organizations or if not available to form them and WinFocus was, uh, as the name says, World Interactive Network. So we wanted to get this out on a global basis. And so WinFocus is uh, involved in individuals across our planet uh, that are trying to take this new technology for the betterment of humankind in areas that would never have these capabilities before. And so we've worked with the United Nations uh, on that, UNESCO, and many other uh, areas, and that we've presented this in in countless uh, formats. And WinFocus is that organ that gets the word out, that does the training in that, now in 68 countries and tens of thousands of students much like the American College of Surgeons. When we uh, uh, showed this technology to them, they went, wow, that's fantastic. Let's use that as the training platform for all surgeons. Or medical schools. When they went, my gosh, this is phenomenal. And that, let's now use this to train uh, the next generation of individuals. What Dan is now doing is, almost the neglected people in this are the physicians. And so Dan is now working with different groups of physicians who previously only ordered ultrasounds are now starting to perform them. So internal medicine, family medicine, dermatology, people like that that can now have and utilize this really important technology to make medicine more efficient, uh, more cost effective and hopefully safer and more timely. Dan, this, uh,
0: this, level of access and, and level of user friendliness seems to be a huge component to this to this incredible technology and and um, Scott described uh, pitching this to other surgeons who reacted with um, you know a, a surprise and then uh, amazement uh, in, in in its applicabilities. I wonder if you've uh, received the same level of excitement uh, when when reaching out to others that have helped it to what it seems like continue to grow.
2: Absolutely. We have wonderful colleagues uh, in our surgery department, in our emergency medicine department, in our internal medicine department. It's really gotten to the point where people recognize that uh, a portable ultrasound has all of the power of a stethoscope in that it gives you the ability to not only listen, but also look and see what's going on in real time inside the body. Uh, So I wouldn't be surprised if in five years or so, or possibly even sooner, we see most physicians starting out in medical school, not having a stethoscope around their neck, but having one of these portable ultrasound devices. And it even translates to um, what happens with patients. When I'm in a room scanning a patient and they see the actual images Coming up on the screen in real time, documenting whatever their problem might be, they become more engaged as well. And so it just goes to show that the, the power of seeing a picture right in front of you in real time is so much more valuable uh, than uh, anything we've really ever had before.
0: Scott I want to circle back on the surgeons um how you how you you mentioned their level of excitement I wonder from your perspective as a surgeon a very experienced surgeon um what what you find most useful and fascinating about this technology and about this access that's getting you and many other surgeons in particular that 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 particular focus of medicine uh on board with with this capability
1: Yeah surgeons are pretty impatient individuals <laughs> and and that we like immediacy of action often we're forced into that in a trauma scenario minutes minutes count in that and having to wait for a diagnostic uh, examination can be life-threatening in that so i think i really appreciate the immediacy of information that it provides dan mentioned but it deserves additional emphasis that rather than a it's not a Polaroid of what's going on. It's a movie camera. And so certain things you can only pick up when you can pick up motion in that. The way we diagnose a collapsed lung is watching the motion of the lung, and that can be lost sometimes in a singular chest X-ray or things like that. And then finally, I think having a tool that is has such broad applicability in that you don't have to have... A hammer for this one, and a nail driver for that thing, and then the screwdriver for this, and that. You have a single machine that you change some settings on, and you can use it to look: is your bone broken, or do you have an infection in your in a cavity in that? Are you pregnant? Do you have appendicitis? And that all with the same darn device, and that that oh by the way costs less than a couple thousand dollars now from. Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars when we first started this and that so I really appreciate that this technology uh, it can it is really at the forefront of how to be almost uh, you know seeing into the human body in real time
0: thinking about the evolution of this technology um, that's that's been mentioned uh, and and just what we can look forward to. Um... Scott, you alluded to things like monitoring diabetes or um, using the tricorder as a di- diagnostic tool. It doesn't seem like there's any any indication that the uh, things are slowing down in this world. If anything, the, the possibilities just just continue to, to grow. I wonder, uh, you know, what what some of these tools are and and how can they how. They can really help the people on Earth uh, that's, that's been started through some of the efforts in space, but then um, taking that, taking those technologies and, and thinking about space as well. I wonder really what I'm getting at here is uh, how this can continue to grow uh, and how the possibilities continue to open up um, uh, as we go through time.
1: Yeah. I, I, I like to think that I'm sort of clever in that, but I'm always uh, amazed when somebody comes up with some novel uh, idea on how to use this I never thought of in that. So some colleagues said, hey, we're having this problem. We're worried about this. maybe the astronauts have increased pressures on their brains from something that's going on in long duration space flight." and that the astronauts were appropriately reluctant for us to put bolts in their head to monitor those, could you use ultrasound? And so some colleagues said, maybe we can look at the back of the eye at some of the nerves and things like that, and darn, it seems to work just famously about that. And so we studied that, we proved that, and, and now it's something that we're using you know, monthly on the space station and also also terrestrially. And then I'd look at Dan and some of his uh, basic uh, Got colleagues that are starting to see some really interesting stuff in diabetes. I'd like him to talk a little
2: bit about this because he's on the forefront of this.
0: Oh, excellent. Yes, Dan, please.
2: Uh, yeah, so what, what Scott is alluding to is the ability to, um, I would describe, look deeper into the images. Um, what ultrasound and most imaging modalities were originally conceived as being able to do is to recognize abnormalities in the anatomy. What we're realizing now with the ability to look at both the raw data and changes in the signal that come off of things like ultrasound at both an individual and an aggregate scale is there's probably information in there that is not perceptible to the human eye But when analyzed by an algorithm, uh, a deep learning type of artificial intelligence algorithm, we're starting to see patterns that may not have been, uh, like Scott had said, uh, even thought of or perceived. Uh, And we have the potential to see architectural changes in structure like muscle or tendon uh, that are – seen on images before they may even be detectable in blood tests. So diabetes is just one of those areas we're exploring right now. Uh, We think we'll have uh, the ability to non-invasively detect things like that and many other things, potentially giving us a predictive capability from these images that could keep people healthy, uh, both on Earth and up in space in addition to the already impressive capabilities that we have with ultrasound to diagnose things after they've happened. So that is particularly exciting. And that's where I, I'm just so fortunate that I have this background in, in computer science to be able to understand uh, and, uh, and think about how do we apply these computational techniques to real-world clinical problems. Uh, and it, there's just such an opportunity to help a huge number of people, again, both uh, on earth and looking at what we can do as we start to explore space.
0: Yeah, and I, and I wanted to sort of circle back on that with you Dan is is there's there's a, certainly a lot of possibilities uh here on earth um and I wonder if if uh, you have a similar level of excitement for for the possibilities in space as well. I know we're returning to the moon um, and uh, we're going to remain in low Earth orbit. I wonder if, as these technologies progress, if if there's um, you know there's ways that we can continue to explore these technologies and these capabilities um, as as we send humans to some of these some of these locations. Even thinking about Mars too, which was mentioned as having a cer- certain delay, but but really capturing uh, this idea of um, of humans in space?
2: Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, we want to continue to push the envelope and uh, and really truly, there's no better way to do that with uh, with folks like NASA and astronauts going up uh, both into space, to the moon, to Mars, beyond. Uh, it's a really unique opportunity. Uh, there's truly nothing quite like that environment on Earth. Uh, and there's such a need to have a technology. Uh, an imaging tool that is both diagnostic and potentially predictive about some of the things that could go wrong when you're looking at a month or years long journey or longer. Uh, you really need to have some of those capabilities. And so I'm excited as some of these tools get smaller and smaller, we're even thinking about making them wearable, uh, which could provide real-time information about what's going on inside the body. could be really interesting as we look at those longer and longer space flights um, zero gravity changes, uh, all those kinds of
0: things. Very interesting stuff. Let me, let me toss to each of you, Scott, you first, and, and then to Dan, I want to make sure we did this topic justice, uh, reviewing some of the things that we've done in space and, and the applications to, uh, a lot of what has seems like rapid progress over the decades, uh, in, uh, on earth. Uh, but I wanted to, to toss to each of you to make sure that, that we covered most of the things that we were hoping to cover. Scott, we'll start with you.
1: Yeah. I guess we haven't fully uh, explored what NASA's involvement uh, has, in fact, been with this. So, yeah, we had an operational problem. We needed a diagnostic tool, and we needed to have it small and portable and usable for astronaut and cosmonaut crews. And I think that we initially started, and we did that. But the pressure from NASA about the educational constraints, you only have a limited amount of time with astronauts, my gosh, it's got to be a small device, it has to be user-friendly, it can't have a lot of uh, power requirements and things like that, really really forced us to think differently about this problem. Absent those constraints imposed by NASA, I don't know if we'd be where we we are today with this technology.
0: Excellent, excellent. And Dan, we'll end with you, the same question, making sure that we did this justice, anything we left off that we really want to reemphasize.
2: No, I think we've covered it all especially with uh with what Scott just said about how important the contributions of the uh the men and women who have gone up into space and uh really put the uh the hours in to prove this out uh has enabled us to do great things back on earth uh, and I think that uh that translation that uh, that uh will continue to bear fruit in the future.
0: Excellent. This is uh certainly one of the I think more um uh one of the more popular topics here at NASA when it comes to uh what we do in space and, and how it uh applies to um to to the betterment of humanity here on Earth. And and this is I think one of the one of our favorite ones. And I think what's really exciting talking to the both of you today is that we're not done. That that this uh there's there's much more to do. So So to Scott and to Dan, thank you both uh, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to come on Houston. We have a podcast and share all of the great work that's been done in space and on the ground and and all of the great work that you both do. Thank you very much.
1: Uh,
2: Our pleasure. Thank you.
0: Like, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Never keep simple. Welcome to space. Hey, thanks for sticking around. It was a pleasure talking with Dr. Scott Dolchowski and Dr. Dan Siegel today uh, to learn more about ultrasounds that have been conducted in space and really around the world and what has been made possible through some of the efforts of NASA. It was really a pleasure to have them on. You can check out nasa.gov ISS for the latest going on in the International Space Station. Uh, of course, there are ultrasounds still being conducted to this day, so you can check out some of the research objectives that are ongoing. We're one of many, many NASA podcasts across the whole agency, and you can find us all at nasa.gov podcast, including us, and you can listen to any of our episodes in no particular order. If you want to talk to us, we're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show, and just make sure to mention it's for us. At Houston, we have a podcast. This episode was recorded on June 2nd, 2022. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, and Jaden Jennings. And of course, thanks again to Scott and Dan for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.